Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Phobias are long-term anxiety disorders that can disrupt the daily life of any person, including an older adult. For some, the condition can bring strong feelings of panic, anxiety, stress, and fear. Today, my guest is Dr. Jay White, a gerontologist with the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond. Jay will talk about athazagoraphobia, a fear of forgetting someone or something, and a fear of being forgotten. He will discuss causes and symptoms of this phobia, why incidence has increased, and how it can be diagnosed and treated. He'll also offer ways older adults can live with common phobias, including athazagoraphobia. So welcome, Jay, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm very happy to be here and have the opportunity to talk about this, you know, very timely conversation. All right. Well, give us a little bit more detail about athazagoraphobia. For one thing I would very much be interested in is finding out what is the origin of that word? You know, um, this is a fairly recent discovery for me and colleagues that, that there actually is a term that refers to the fear of dementia or the fear of being forgotten. For years, we've said that there is there's there's something pathological about this this fear of losing our memories, and then we started to do a literature review, and and lo and behold, there is a term, athazagoraphobia, and. Um, you know, after the, the weeks it took me to, to figure out how to pronounce this, um, just looking into the etymology and the origins of the word and the literature, it's really kind of difficult to find. And it's not often used at all, really. Um, in the literature, it's, it's, it kind of flops back and forth between the fear of being forgotten and the actual fear of dementia. So it's not even really used commonly in academic or even healthcare situations. But we were just, you know, dumbfounded to know that there's actually a term that we use. So we thought we'd start with the term and just move forward and see how much traction we get with it. And how often does this phobia occur among older adults? Well, we do not have specific statistics about fear of dementia itself, but fear of aging, you know, fear of aging is you know, in most older adults or, you know, and people across the lifespan, there is some sort of fear about growing older. We call that gerontophobia, which is fear of aging or fear of the aged. Um, but part of gerontophobia, another phobia is athazagoraphobia, fear of being forgotten or fear of losing your memory. And I was wondering if athazagoraphobia and ageism is is related. I I'm thinking again. We're looking at the definition of of this phobia, a fear of forgetting someone or something, and a fear of being forgotten. Oftentimes, we even think of ourselves and present company included of you know a senior moment. It, and then there are people who might even make fun of or stereotype people who are getting older. So I was wondering if the phobia is is related to ageism. Yes, 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 yes. Um, ageism and athazagoraphobia or ageism and fear of dementia, just like you mentioned in, in those little microaggressive comments like senior moment, you know, we kind of laugh that off as humor, but there's a little nugget of fear or truth in every little jab of humor. So even when we make a, a little funny little quote unquote funny little aside like, oh, I'm having a senior moment. There really is a nugget of fear in there that, 
oh gosh, I may be losing my memory or, oh gosh, my, you know, my intellectual processing is slowing down. And, you know, whenever we come across a fear like that, whether it's a micro or a macro aggression, we feel isolated. We feel different. We feel othered. Um, and we retreat. You know, it's not often that we see people with phobias that are out and about completely socially, you know, integrated in society. People with phobias tend to hide them and tend to hide themselves. It, it's almost like the um, self-fulfilling prophecy. If people make fun of older adults because of that, uh, the possibility of athazagoraphobia may increase. Would you agree? Yes, Cheryl, I would agree 100%. Um, it's like a rolling stone. You know, it, it accumulates these um, these many assaults. And after we accumulate these, these many assaults of, um, you know, fear, these little senior moments, if you will, um, little comments about, you know, things that make us insecure or scared, you know, like with any fear, you know, we see an increase in cortisol, an increase in stress. And, you know, again, people who are stressed, who are experiencing fear or maybe even panic, oftentimes after they experience the same signs and symptoms that they themselves are trying to um, cover up. Okay. Well, I wanted to take a little bit of a turn here on the interview and talk about the relationship between athazagoraphobia and Alzheimer's disease, because in fact, one of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is um, uh, forgetting someone or something, and it could also be a fear of being forgotten as the disease progresses. Talk to us a little bit more about the relationship there um, and, and how that works. And, and maybe even more so, do you, in your capacity at the university, work with people who are caring for folks with Alzheimer's disease? Yes. To the first part of your question, um, there is a distinct relationship between the fear of dementia and uh you know, Alzheimer's related dementia, you know, Alzheimer's disease, which is only one of many different types of dementia. You know, when I first started talking about this, there were 26 different types of dementia. And now we've discovered over 100. So, um, as, and we should also note that Alzheimer's related dementia accounts for about 40% of all of these other dementias. But, um, Alzheimer's disease in and of itself has received over the last, increasingly over the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, so much attention, so much press. Um, and it really has increased or pathologized normal memory loss. I mean, let's just be very candid. As we get older, there is, and it's not necessarily memory loss. It's, I mean, the best analogy that I can give is that if you've got a computer that's a, full, a few years old, it's full of data. And so it takes that computer a little bit longer to sift through all of that data to reach a conclusion or a result or an opinion or, you know, draw any kind of name, uh, draw any kind of data. Our brains are the same way. You know, th they get full. They slow down a little bit. But... The data is still there. It just takes a little bit longer to generate. And in our fast-paced lives, the slowing down of our CPU, if you will, our central processing unit, which is our brain, it doesn't really fit well when people are kind of throwing data and throwing questions at us very quickly. So um, these minuscule delays in memory retrieval are coming across as these senior moments and um, really have been pathologized because, you know, as you said, Cheryl, the first symptom of any kind of dementia-related disorder is, is memory loss. Well, even a minuscule um, slip, not, it's not even a slip. It's just a slowing down of the ability to retrieve data. It's scaring the heck out of people that, oh my gosh, I might have Alzheimer's disease. 
because Alzheimer's disease, with the most significant symptom being memory loss, is in my face all the time. In the media, in popular culture, in films, in television, whether it's a joke or whether it's a documentary or a film about somebody who's got some sort of memory loss. And to add to the challenge, when it's in pop culture or in the media, it's normally sensationalized. It's the worst case or the worst situation. You know, somebody who has Alzheimer's related dementia has, you know, escaped from the facility or escaped from the home. And there's a, a, um, it's not an Amber alert, but whatever you call it in Virginia, when, um, an older adult goes missing. Um, so it really has created this hysteria related to what I would just is normal brain aging. That was the first part of your question. I think the second part I might need to be reminded of. Well, I I guess I was trying to figure out whether uh, the person who actually has been diagnosed with dementia is now realizing is also suffering from aphasagoraphobia, that it, as I said, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of becoming, it's, it's realized that they really are f- uh, forgetting someone or something. Um, and, and this other part is this fear of, of being forgotten. And so um, as the disease progresses, might all of these uh, factors come into play as the Alzheimer's disease uh, progresses? Well, I think first we need to go back to an accurate diagnosis. Um, You know, when your general practitioner is asking you seven questions um, to assess whether or not you've got some kind of dementia-related disorder and then diagnosing you and then putting you on Aricept or Namenda or some other kind of prescription, that's not enough time to get an accurate diagnosis. So let's put air quotes around Alzheimer's disease as a diagnosis um, because we really need to, first of all, make sure that it's an accurate diagnosis and it really needs to be based on more than a seven question, five minute interview. Um, So that's the first part of that. But um, yes, the fear is real and the fear, even before a diagnosis, people are self-diagnosing all the time. Oh, I must have Alzheimer's. Oh, I've got dementia. You know, my mom had it or my great aunt or great uncle had it. So I must have it. You know, the truth is um, most people at any time in life will not have a dementia related disorder. The statistics are uh, up until the age of about early 80s, only about seven to 10 percent of us will have any kind of cognitive impairment that significantly impacts our activities of daily living. So let me just say that again. Up until early 80s or so, only about 7 to 10 percent of us have any kind of um, pathological, any kind of medical memory issue. The numbers do increase pretty significantly over 85 to 90 and above, but at no time do the numbers really get above 40 percent. So 40, 43% is what the literature tells us that um, is the worst case scenario of any of us developing uh, any kind of memory issue that impacts our activities of daily living. So even if you're, you know, 105, you've got a 43% chance of some kind of pathological memory loss. I also wanted to ask you about family caregivers. Again, as we think about this phobia and how it relates for the family caregiver to the person maybe who has dementia, might that also be a factor that the family caregiver, first of all, might also have this phobia, being that they're uh, concerned about that someone is going to forget them um, because of the Alzheimer's disease, and also maybe even, yeah, taking it a little bit further of, of being forgotten. Does the family caregiver play an important role in the presence of this phobia, particularly for those who are suffering from dementia? Yes, absolutely, Cheryl. Family caregivers are, you know, our most wonderful asset for um, 
you know, aging in place. Fam- we, we could not um, keep folks in their homes outside of institutional care without family caregivers. So they're, they're a wonderful, um, a wonderful asset, biopsychosocial, spiritually, family caregivers are incredible. Um, however, um, with a dementia diagnosis, we don't see a whole lot of questioning. You know, the diagnosis comes across and folks just assume because of all of the um, hype, if you will, that um, dementia-related disorders have been receiving, um, they just go along with the diagnosis and then infantilize or try to, um, you know, really engage in this role reversal, um, which doesn't work. You know, you don't, even, even in cases where an individual does have a diagnosis of dementia, th- this flipping of the roles between parent and child really creates a lot of friction. So we see with either an accurate or inaccurate diagnosis of dementia, a lot of friction that's happening um, between the parent and the and or the child or the family caregiver, um, because we see this really premature um, disruption of roles. Um, some of the other challenges are again the infantilizing and the paternalism that are associated with a diagnosis of dementia. You know, people even with an accurate diagnosis are still very capable. There's still elements of um, even until the very end, elements where we can support choice and voice. And once we start doing things for people or to people um, without their consent, without their involvement, without their um, feedback, it just it's it's a really isolating phenomenon, if that makes sense. You know, once we start treating people like children, um, regardless of the diagnosis, it just does not turn well. It does not turn out well. But I would also think that because the caregiver might have had a different type of relationship before the dementia was diagnosed, that there is also a realization that after the person uh, passes away um, or is at a state where they don't even recognize uh, their spouse or their caregiver anymore, that on the part of the caregiver, that they too have some sense of this phobia, fear of being forgotten. It is. It is. There's also the, there's the fear of I'm also going to get this. It's contagious. Um, but there's also the fear of being forgotten and that loss. And and it's one of the things that complexes the relationship and makes me so grateful for family caregivers because they're juggling so much, you know, with jobs and other family members, but also this profound sense of loss, especially with a dementia diagnosis. So, you know, from the start, right out of the gate, we're leading with a glass half empty when, you know, with just some, just a little bit of tweaking coming at it with a glass half full um, perspective or approach to things, you know, like a strength-based intervention. Let's focus on what mom or dad or the loved one can still do and still wants to do. And let's focus on these activities. Let's focus on these preferences and, you know, kind of try to minimize what they can't do. You know, a perfect example is reorienting. You know, I see a lot of folks, um, regardless of the diagnosis, trying to reorient their loved one. You know, you're in a conversation and, um, like we discussed before, there's a little bit of a slowdown in information retrieval and the caregiver immediately inserts the word. You were looking for this. This is the information that you wanted. And I'm like, well, just slow down. They were getting there. Um, Just give them a second. Um, And there's a shame involved with being corrected, you know, having your child correct you or answer your question for you. And that shame creates dissonance and crunchiness and isolation. And it's it's just not a good thing. Well, no, the only thing I was trying to get at was the fact that sometimes as somebody continues to get uh, their symptoms uh, accelerate insofar as dementia, oftentimes they don't even recognize their caregiver as their spouse or a family member. And there have been cases where it's time for the person with dementia to actually have to go to um, a certain location where they end up um, being attracted to someone else and forget the fact 
fact that they had a, a spouse. And so I was trying to just point out about the family caregiver might also have a fear of being forgotten. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, that's why I was just praising family caregivers, because they do have to go through a lot, you know, especially in, in some of the actual cases of a diagnosed dementia, the um, the new behaviors and the new, uh, yeah, and forgetting um, forgetting a loved one and engaging in new relationships because they can't remember exactly who the loved one is and new relationships and those situations are fairly infrequent, but it's part of what we 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 tend to focus on those as a society because they're so sad and they're so um, life altering. So I don't want to minimize them for anybody who's ever experienced that. You know, if um, if somebody's had a loved one and um, who's forgotten them or oftentimes forgets them and has tried to create new relationships to compensate, um, that must be awful. That really must be awful. Um, but it is absolutely the exception and not the rule. Well, let's move on to some other aspect of athasagoraphobia. Do you find that uh, older adults might suffer from this phobia if the relationship with their family members is marginal? They, you talked about isolation earlier, and maybe it has a variety of reasons, but do older adults then have a, con- a concern about uh, being forgotten? Do you see this often? Well, yes, I see the fear of being forgotten and also the fear of forgetting also increasing based on a lack of a village. You know, in gerontology, we talk about the holistic model of care, biological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual. And a lot of times, particularly in dementia, we just look at the medical. But there's a whole host of other factors, holistic other factors, that play into this across the lifespan. Um, So we do see people who have got thinner social networks, smaller villages. Um, and this could happen for a variety of reasons that have accumulated across the lifespan, but they do have often a greater fear of memory loss or a fear of, um, a fear of being forgotten because they don't have those deep, rich social connections and networks that we really need to survive and thrive, not just in elderhood, but across the lifespan. Well, then I'd like to turn to what some of the causes are. But before getting there, I was wondering if gender or race or ethnicity, uh, does that have any impact on the likelihood of this phobia? Do you, in terms, what are the statistics? Are there more women than men, um, different cultural uh, groups? Who is more likely to have this phobia of athasagoraphobia? Oh my gosh, Cheryl, we need a whole nother show. (laughs) But um, this is a complicated answer because it's based on so many different levels of identity. And for each level of identity, you've got a biological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual, you know, kind of avenue for looking at, um, at this. We do see more evidence of Dementia-related disorders, fear of dementia-related disorders. Well, all right, let me unpack this a little bit. We do see more evidence of dementia-related disorders related to socioeconomic status, Um, lack of access to good care, mental health care, physical health care, whatever you have it. People who, um, from a lower socioeconomic status, often are at greater risk for developing a a dementia-related disorder. That not doesn't necessarily mean that they have a fear of it, because here's where this gets complicated. Uh, and this is also some emerging literature, some emerging study, is that individuals um, based on gender, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, also socioeconomic status, have this resiliency factor, this strength factor. So what we're seeing is that, um, and this is very new and very uh, an emerging in um, literature and study, is is the development of this resilience um, based on things that you've had to experience during your life, 
racism, sexism, homophobia, um, economic issues, what, what have you. So people who have experienced these things sometimes, not all the time, have developed these coping mechanisms, resilience, villages of people who help them out. Um, you know, we all need people, resources, communities of faith, whatever, to sustain us as we live and grow older. So people who have experienced, you know, these isms in life tend to have these villages more so than people of privilege. Um, and this is, again, an interesting and new um bit of study that people from privilege who do even have access to the good health care and the good whatever, whatever, um, actually tend to be less resilient and tend to not deal with a fear of growing older, gerontophobia, a fear of dementia, a fear of memory loss, athazagoraphobia, um, but also tend to be impacted by ageism more because they really haven't developed that scaffolding of psychosocial skills or communities to combat it. So interestingly, I'll give a statistic here. The suicide rate for older white men um, is about four times higher than the national average. It's, it's about the same as transgender youth. And so some of us are postulating that, huh, why are individuals who are norm normally associated with this kind of privilege taking their own lives? Um, the number is, I think the benchmark is about 75 plus. And what we're kind of postulating is that there's this lack of resilience to deal with these things that folks have who have actually experienced based on racism, you know, homophobia, transphobia. Um, sexism, things like that, um, really haven't developed this um, coping mechanism and therefore are taking their own lives when this fear of losing themselves, you know, losing their memory, losing their power, losing their status um, is presented to them or they're just afraid of it. So, I mean, we... So to get back to your original question, it really is complicated and you almost have to look at, well, you don't almost have to, you really have to look at the individual because it's so hard to come up with generalizable data because there's so many things that influence um, these fears, these phobias as we grow older. Does that make sense? Yes. And we're going to take a break right now so that people can think about that, and then we'll get back to, to talking more about it after the break. And if you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Jay White, a gerontologist with the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, and you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or CCAT. KW at gmail.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jay White, a gerontologist with the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, and we're talking about athazagoraphobia, which we have already discussed in terms of the fear of forgetting someone or something and a fear of being forgotten. But Jay, help us on this. What what are the symptoms of this phobia? Might older adults with certain personality traits be more likely to have this phobia? Give us a little bit of an overview of what what people might be experiencing that would indicate they have this phobia. Absolutely, and it's and it's such it's so timely with the holiday season upon us because you know a lot of times uh, we're going to be visiting family and friends who we haven't seen for a while, and so when we're visiting family and friends we haven't seen for a while, particularly older adults, uh, we tend to zero in on 
all right, well, let's check out to see what what's going on with mom now. You know, what's medically, um, some what some of the problems are. You know, we in the business we kind of joke about the um, the highest number of calls that the area agencies on aging come in on the Monday after Thanksgiving and the Monday after Christmas because family members have gone to visit mom or dad and something seems wrong, but it. Um, particularly also during the pandemic, when there's also been this profound isolation, people are different. You know, we as a planet over the last two years have experienced a trauma. And anytime we experience something profound like this, it alters. It alters us, you know, biologically, psychologically, sociologically, and spiritually. So I think we really need to cut ourselves some slack um, and cut our loved ones some slack, uh, especially this time of year when, you know, if we go to somebody's house for Thanksgiving, go to mom and dad's house for Thanksgiving, and they're quote unquote a little off, you know, we've all just experienced a pandemic. So actually, we may be the ones who are a little off. Um, so let's just give ourselves a little bit of space and grace, first of all, um, because we've all been through a pandemic. Um, and then, um, you know, get back to the business of diagnosing, if you will. So what would be some of those symptoms of the aphasagoraphobia? Well, with any kind of fear, we see isolation. Uh, that's most profound is people withdrawing from their normal, usual networks, which again, we've all done over the last two years. We've all been doing some withdrawing and there's a fear of, re-engaging in society. You know, we're all supposed to go out and, you know, be business as usual, but we've got a Delta variant and now an Omicron variant um, in COVID. So there are these fears of re-engaging. So in addition to the normal, you know, ageist mentality of, you know, older adults, you know, isolating and losing memories and things like this, this is exacerbated by all of our fear of re-engaging in society for fear of getting COVID. And if uh, older adults' uh, relatives were observing their loved one, I, is is there some kind of behavior that people are showing? Um, I, I mean, are they lashing out more? Are they angrier more? Um, what do what do um, what would family members need to be looking for? Uh, as far as this phobia is concerned. Uh, Cheryl, that's a great, that's a great point. You know, the real thing is what we're looking at is dementia versus depression and anxiety. And so the, the key factor in depression is going to be um, sort of anxiously ruminating about your memory loss or whatever's going wrong. You know, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. People who actually have memory loss on a pathological level tend to isolate and not talk about it. So, I mean, that's that's the biggest difference between depression and dementia is um, people who are depressed or anxious talk about it all the time. And people who really are experiencing some kind of memory loss tend to isolate and try to hide it. So would there be a particular behaviors that an older adult might be exhibiting that would warrant a, a visit to a physician? H how do we make that determination? And, and if so, then what kind of health care provider would be the best to see? You know, I don't know that I would go to a physician right off if my loved one were pathologically isolating and experiencing, you know, more than just some verbal forgetfulness or losing the car keys or things like that. If they were experiencing memory loss that was significantly impacting activities of daily living, I would talk to the loved one first and try to get on the same page. And then um, I still probably wouldn't go to a doctor. My concern here is that physicians tend to pathologize memory loss as quickly as family caregivers do. Back to what I said before in, in your first half hour about many physicians offering a seven-question diagnosis. So, my goodness, I would really, I would talk to other members of the family 
other members trusted, let me back up, trusted members of the family, trusted members of their village to see if this actually is something that warrants a physician visit. Does that make sense? Well, it does. I just don't know whether there's a turning point in which it would be wise for a healthcare provider to uh, provide some kind of a diagnosis um, or and treatment too. Because I want to talk about if this becomes something, this phobia becomes so serious that people are not li- being able to live with it uh, comfortably, what kinds of treatments might be available. But I'm hearing you say that it might be possible to live with a phasagoraphobia. And if so, what would be some examples of coping skills that um, people can use then? Let's, let's start there before a diagnosis is, is needed. Right. I mean, if we, and let's, let's, let me be clear, because I think I was confounding a little bit. Um, the fear of dementia and an actual diagnosis of dementia um, are entirely different things. The actual fear, the phobia, like any phobia, um, would be treated with a good visit to a mental health professional. In fact, especially this time of year, I think we could all benefit from a little counseling. I mean, if I'm being, if I'm being completely honest, especially coming out of or not even coming out of, but coming in and out of a pandemic, we are all experiencing anxiety, isolation, loneliness, you know, just this. So for the actual fear of developing a dementia-related disorder, it would be talking to a counselor, talking to a pastor, talking to a trusted family friend, you know, making sure that we have those villages of support to be cheerleaders, you know, help us look at the glass half full, help us look at the statistics. Like, I know you're scared about this, but the likelihood that this is actually some kind of dementia is just like the statistics I stated earlier. It's unlikely. And if one uh, sees an older adult uh, with or without a family member sees this type of uh, individual, a counselor, a pastor, or a physician. Uh, is there certain treatments then that are recommended? I mean, we've been hearing now a lot about athazagoraphobia, but are there formal best treatments that people recommend? A mental health worker? What what would uh, what would be the way? that we go forward and not only determine what is the problem, but what is the solution? The solution, yes. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, I think with any other phobia, when it becomes so profound that it's impacting activities of daily living, um, we need to go seek a mental health professional. And usually, most often, it's part of a larger diagnosis. Um, If the fear is so profound, the anxiety is so great that it's significantly impacting activities of daily living, then it's much deeper than just a thazagoraphobia. It's some other kind of mental health issue, Um, you know, and especially this time of year. Um, And usually if these symptoms last more than, you know, six weeks or so, um, we need to look at some kind of mental health intervention. And, and the types of interventions are outside of my pay scale. I know enough to refer to a good clinician, a good LCSW or a licensed professional counselor, because that is, that is not in my skill set. As I was preparing for these questions, I did see a number of uh, possibilities. And maybe you could just talk a little bit more about what you know. I, for example, one of the possible treatments is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. What is that? Cognitive behavioral therapy in layman's terms is just training our brains to look at the glass half full. Um, And that is so tough in these challenging times, especially when we're bombarded by negative messaging messages from everywhere. But cognitive behavioral therapy is, is very simply training our brains to look at the glass half full when presented with a situation instead of looking what's looking at what's wrong look at what's right and is that usually done uh the person can be trained to do that themselves or is there a therapist that's involved or how does that work 
it really should be done with a clinician, a mental health therapist, um, or somebody, you know, spiritually, if you, if you don't ascribe to the medical model, um, somebody spiritually who can, um, help out with that. Um, and, and in dis- different disciplines, cognitive behavioral therapy, strength-based interventions, it's called different things, but it just is simply training our brains to look at the glass half full. And I'm assuming that another one might be in the same category of mindfulness. Are you familiar with that? And, and is it also a possible treatment for athazagoraphobia? It certainly is. When we're talking about mindfulness, it is. It's, it's, it takes training and it takes dedication to be a mindful person. Um, when we're talking about mindfulness, again, it's this retraining our brain to step back, you know, kind of take our anxiety and set it aside, evaluate it, and just know that, have the skills to know that we're going to be okay. Um, and again, mindfulness is, it's not something you can really teach yourself to do. You really need a facilitator to train you in, um, in the best techniques. I was also wondering if these various techniques, and you said there's, uh, it's helpful to have uh, a therapist present to train or teach a person how to do this. Are most of these kinds of therapies, treatments, whatever you want to call them, are they covered by Medicare or other insurance plans, or is this something that an older adult or the family member would have to help uh, to cover the expense for the, those treatments? Generally, Medicare and Medicaid and any kind of long-term care insurance will pay for mental health counseling. Depending on the kind of insurance you have, there may be a copay, and there are many counselors who also offer sliding scale. Um, they're private pay only, but they have sliding scale, or um, you've got your local uh, free clinic, if you will, or health department that has some of these services available free of charge. So there, there are any number of resources out there um, for mental health support. Uh, NAMI, the National Association for Mental Illness, uh, maintains resources and websites of places around the country where people can access good mental health care good advice there. I wanted to get back to some of the other possible therapies or treatments that might be helpful in this phobia, the athazagoraphobia. How about breathing techniques? I was thinking before when you were talking about mindfulness as to whether uh, people often talk about taking a deep breath and that kind of helps to uh, stabilize people sometimes in a, a stressful situation. Are breathing techniques often prescribed or recommended, and are they effective? What would you tell us? For sure, especially in the most profound situations of somebody's having a panic attack or the the fear has gotten so much that the anxiety related to the fear is difficult to control. Um, and breathing is part of mindfulness, so it's it's you know and 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 some people do this a different way, but I say, you know you take a deep breath in for five and count for five seconds, and then you push out for eight. And so you breathe in for five seconds, and then you breathe out for a count of eight. Uh, And you do that three or four times. And just, again, part of mindfulness is just to center yourself, and you tell yourself that you're okay, you're safe, and then you know, sort of get yourself back to a baseline and then start to really evaluate, am I really losing my memory? Is this accurate? You know, and and truth telling to yourself, you know, and sometimes the situation is, yeah, this is impacting my, my life. So I need to go do something about it, or I need to, you know, phone a friend or talk to my kids. But a lot of times, um, we'll see folks are, oh, okay, no, I'm just stressed out. I'm really okay. Good advice. I also wanted to find out whether or not you are familiar with any kind of medications that are prescribed for for this phobia in particular. You know, that's when you really need to see a clinician. Um, I, as a gerontologist and a certified dementia practitioner, I really, um, I have a lot of opinions about medications, but I'm not qualified to um, really talk about medications other than 
um, I think folks are over-medicated and are well-served to talk to their pharmacist or physician about all of the medications that we're on and if they are contributing to the memory loss. And also, sometimes it may be possible that some of the medications that older adults are on have certain side effects, which might exacerbate uh, particular uh, phobias or other situations as well. So um, certainly... Oh, my heavens, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So important to talk with your physician about uh, the medications that um, are, are being prescribed. Let's let's expand a little bit, Jay, about phobias generally. Uh, you're a gerontologist, and so in addition to uh, aphasagoraphobia, which is what we've been focusing on t- today, are you aware and can you talk about, certainly we hope you are, uh, about other phobias that are common amongst older adults? What would you tell us? Well, there really is, like I mentioned before, gerontophobia, which is the fear of aging and fear of the aged, um, which is an actual fear of growing older or a fear of older adults themselves. Because we see, and this is so interesting to me, that in Western culture, we have a joke again that um, in the in America we're the only we're the only country that thinks that dying is optional. Um, so we look at the aging process and again and just pathologize the whole thing and so we're we're scared of older adults because it means that you know we have to face our own mortality which i have to tell you folks it's true death and taxes the one thing we all have in common um we all i guarantee you will eventually die and particularly in the West and the United States, we are scared to death, pun intended. And is other than the advice that you just gave now to our listeners, is there other good approaches for, let's talk about the the phobia that you were just talking about. I mean, how do you talk people out of this kind of phobia? You mentioned the word perfectly. It's talk. We have to elevate the conversation about our fears about growing older because the only way that we can isolate these fears is to put them out on the table. You know, years ago, um, there was a hashtag that was that was going around social media called no pie until you tell me how you want to die which was, you know, around the Thanksgiving table, you know, before we have dessert, we have to talk about our wishes. Um, We have to talk about, you know, what we want for our elderhood, what we want for our care. And these conversations don't happen enough. So Cheryl, back to what you were saying before, we just have to start talking about it. We've been really focusing now on this particular phobia, which seems to be the athazagoraphobia, which is, is related to older adults generally. But I was wondering, can something medical or genetic, can it cause a, a phobia in, in those individuals who actually have them? It could be. It could be any d- number of different, you know, from a biological standpoint, you know, genetics. You know, we are, you know, we're the sum of everything that is everything and everyone who has come before us. So there could be childhood traumas um, that don't get triggered. I mean, in COVID, we see some childhood and early adult traumas that have been triggered. This level of isolation, especially in folks who are um, in the institutional model in uh, assisted livings and skilled nursing facilities have been traumatized and re-triggered based on something that happened to them earlier in life. Yes, absolutely. Um, COVID has um, really kind of um, brought forth or stressed people so that mental health issues that, and mental health issues don't just start. I mean, they're, they're lifespan and they can start before birth, but it really has brought to life some, uh, some mental health challenges that people have experienced and heretofore were able to cover up. So you mentioned that you have a practice uh when you talk with individuals are who might have these phobias, whatever the uh, aphasagoraphobia or some other phobia, and you also mentioned about the area agencies on aging, 
Are there other community resources available that could help older adults deal with phobia-related symptoms besides, say, just the, I shouldn't say just, but but the um, Area Agency on Aging? What do you tell the individuals that you um, work with? Well, it really is unique to the individual. So when when somebody comes to me, I kind of do a village assessment, as I call it. You know, who is in your network of trusted providers, um, healthcare, faith community, spiritual community, what have you? And then we kind of look at who the trusted individuals are. And then if there is, you know, a member of a congregation or if there's a medical provider, um, we go with um, that. I usually don't refer to anybody, especially with a fear of memory loss, to somebody they don't know. It really takes a relationship to have that kind of conversation. And personally, I'm not going to refer to somebody that I'm, I'm not sure is going to, you know, spend the real time that it takes to, you know, take a deeper dive, not just ask somebody seven questions and give them a prescription. And I would imagine also that as part of this process of helping the older adult, the family member or family members or caregivers, are they also involved? I hope so. That's definitely a best practice. Um, we need to create the village, if you will, of the, of the best people. And you know, and sometimes family members aren't necessarily the best people. So we have to look at that network of family and friends or you know, people that we have relationships with, that we've built good relationships with, who we need in these times. All right. And last question, any particular resource that you just want to tell us again about learning about aphasagoraphobia or other phobias affecting older adults? You know, I really would, you know, because aphasagoraphobia has, um, has so little, um, literature surrounding it, I would check in with your area agency on aging because any kind of fear that you have related to uh, growing older, um, I'm hopeful that an area agency on aging uh, will have a resource that is unique to your community that they can refer you to. Or look for a gerontologist. You know, we, we tend to have a pretty good, uh, tend to have a pretty good handle on these kinds of situations. Okay. Good advice. Well, I want to thank Dr. Jay White, gerontologist with the Longevity Project for Greater Richmond for joining me today. If you want to learn about Aging Matters, visit our website, agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And of course, you can also access the Aging Matters podcast on Apple and Spotify. The uh, icon is at the bottom of the page, so be sure and check that out. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and information about that company is at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.